What a delight it is to see you, loved ones. If you've not already done so, uh, I want to invite you to join me in Psalm 131. Psalm 131, and I want to thank Pastor Brian for his words and uh, more importantly for the prayer. And uh, thank you for praying for us over the next couple of months. Um, Specifically, you can pray for uh, rest and uh, you can also just pray for me. Uh, in the areas of just holiness and uh, faithfulness uh, to be uh, a a good and tender and gentle and godly shepherd um, for this flock. So you guys are going to be missed. You will be often in our thoughts and uh, prayers and in conversation. And uh, I imagine that uh, for many of you, we probably will be crossing paths uh, over the next couple of months. So it will be good to see you your faces. Psalm 131, the title for today's sermon is A Quiet Soul Before God. Hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. And let's once again ask his help. Father, we are thankful that you've given us this opportunity to gather together today. And Lord, you know, you know all the things that have transpired in life, not just in the last month, but just in the last week, within the last 24 hours, uh, with, you know, just the things that have gone on this morning and all that uh, is happening in our soul right now. And Lord, we just humbly acknowledge to you on the front end that we do not have the strength nor the power within ourselves to quiet a raging soul. So we ask for your help. We ask for your wisdom. Well, we pray that we would embody Christ-like humility in all things. And Lord, we pray that you would help us even in this day, this day that we, uh, you know, the church sets aside to celebrate that Christ is risen. Psalm 131 may not seem like your typical Resurrection Sunday text, Lord, but there are so many wonderful applications to live upon because of the crucified, risen, seated, now interceding Savior who will one day, one day make all things right. We pray, Lord, that you would this morning give us a fresh glimpse of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning to grow in love for you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning. It's just one 
passage or one phrase or one insight, one application, God, we pray that you would use that and help us to worship you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 131, a quiet soul before God. This is one of the 15 recorded psalms of ascent. So they begin in Psalm chapter 120 and they progress all the way to Psalm 134. There are varying views for the use um, of this psalm with you know, no clear evidence for whether the ascent had in view a spiritual progression or a rise in musical pitch or that it was a physical ascent involving a movement upward. So it seems most likely that the Jews used the Psalms of Ascent on the way to worship uh, in Jerusalem, on their way to the temple in Jerusalem Jerusalem to worship. This would be both, uh, holding this view, this would be both a physical and a spiritual understanding. Physical in the sense that they are journeying uh, from their land, from where they reside, and they are moving toward Jerusalem spiritual in the sense that they are readying and preparing their hearts to worship God. David is the author of Psalm 131. A bit unclear is the surrounding context, meaning there's no obvious event in the Old Testament that this psalm is written out of. What is clear is that this is a psalm expressing trust and confidence in God. Spurgeon had a couple of helpful remarks on this psalm. Comparing all the psalms to gems, or like rubies, we should liken this one to a pearl. How beautifully it will adorn the neck of patience. It is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. So this psalm is one that we quickly embrace as a wise disposition of our soul. How many of us just in the reading of this psalm perhaps offered up inwardly a longing to be in the place, in the state, in the condition that David described. I want to be there. I want my soul quiet, content, composed before the Lord. But yet, that may be the disposition that we're crying out. We find it challenging in the throes of life especially when affliction, sin, and suffering await us like cold wind and heavy rain once we've been exposed from a shelter. So there's two points for today's sermon from from this text. What prevents quiet souls before God is the question. And the second is the disposition of a quiet soul before God. So number one, what prevents quiet souls before God? Verse 1, David helps us understand the answer to that question. It's the condition of the inner man. That's what prevents a quiet and composed soul before the Lord. The heart, the eyes, and the will. One author, Derek Kidner, put the condition in these two categories as pride and presumption. These three statements that describe the inner man that David uses. His heart is not too proud. He does not have haughty eyes or his eyes are not raised too high. And third, he does not involve himself in great matters or things 
that he describes as being too difficult for himself. It's a good thing, right? It's good for your heart to not be proud. It's good for you to not have haughty eyes. It's good for you to, to not involve yourself in matters that are too difficult for you. That's a, that's a good thing, right? Isn't that a good disposition to have? And you would be correct. But let's understand these three phrases. And I think understanding these three phrases in these two categories, things that are within and things that are without. The things that are within which are pride in the heart and how you understand and look at others. That's what haughty eyes means. The things that are without, the events and circumstances in life that are often outside your control, but still have a very active influence and impact upon the inner man. So let's look a little bit more closely at the things within, the heart and eyes in verse one. The heart. David's saying he's not too proud or that he's not proud in his inner man. Pride is an obvious deterrent in obedience to God and in relation to his soul would lead to a tumultuous life rather than a quiet soul. His eyes. David is saying here that his eyes are not too lifted up, which is a reference in relationship toward other people. He's not looking down upon them, down, down his nose. He's not looking down upon them as though he were better than them or, if he were, or, or as though he were stronger than them or more spiritual or even he's not looking at them in a way that's, that, that tries to compare his suffering with their suffering. Scoffing or turning your nose up toward others are one description Proverbs uses to describe the wicked. Let me read for you Proverbs chapter 30, verses 13 through 14. There are those, how lofty are their eyes. There's that phrase again. How high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. You may recall the sin list there in Proverbs chapter six. Well, one of the sins are on that list. They're haughty, they're, they're haughty eyes. You know what God says about this list? He hates it. So those are things within, the heart and the eyes. What about things without? So David uses the phrase, that he's not going after great matters or things that are too difficult, which speaks of ambition. This is a bit interesting given that David will at some point in his life serve as king of Israel. We're not really sure uh, when this psalm was written, but at some point he's going to be the king of Israel. That's a fairly great matter. And for the latter phrase, things too difficult, we know as well that David sinfully pursued Bathsheba. So this is not a blind disregard that David has had sinful ambition, but more of a present moment where his ambition is brought humbly under God's authority. And as I hope to apply later in this sermon, David has an understanding that there are matters that are outside of his control, beyond his ability to stop 
These are matters where sin is involved, but it's not his sin that puts him in a challenging predicament. It's maybe the sin of others or suffering and affliction that comes as a result of sin in this world. James' language in James chapter 3 describes selfish or jealous, jealous uh, ambition as earthly, demonic. So what can prevent a quiet and composed soul before the Lord? Pride. Or considering yourself as better or more important than others. Sinful, jealous ambition and suffering. So our soul gives rise to these questions. Will I give way to my pride and the exertion of my self-will? Will I be uncharitable toward others? Will I permit my eyes to look upon the external weight of the circumstances in my condition and despair of all hope? Will I cave in? Will I buckle against the weight and make shipwreck of my faith? Will I put myself, or excuse me, will I pull myself together through sheer determination that I will not allow the tumultuous problems of this world to have their way with me? These may be questions we're tempted to ask, but we should realize those are the wrong questions. Will we humble ourselves? Aware of both pride and wickedness, both are, both are on display here. Pride and weak, I'm sorry, not wickedness, pride and weakness. And then take this opportunity to avail yourself to the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 15, admonishing the Pharisees and their external worship and tradition, he quoted Isaiah, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far, are far from me. Therefore, you worship me in vain. Hearts not toward the Lord. God's prophecy, Jesus picking up that prophecy, your worship's in vain. Jesus pulls his disciples closer to him and tells them what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So what prevents a quiet soul before the Lord? Pride, haughtiness, selfish ambition, and suffering that leads to hopelessness. Number two, hope in the Lord. The disposition of a calmed and quieted soul before God. So first point we considered the various components that would prevent a quiet soul before the Lord. Secondly, we want to consider what that disposition looks like. How does someone arrive at a calm and quieted and composed soul before the Lord? In our understanding of this psalm, verse 1 is our condition. Verse 2 is, would be the posture. Verse 3 is the answer. This is the answer for a quiet and composed soul. Hope in God. What he's describing personally is what he's applied to his own soul and then what he is saying corporately. Hope 
in God. Hope in God right now. And hope in God forever. Hope in God from this time forth and forevermore. What is it that David does? What's his secret to a quiet and composed soul before God? What's the arsenal that he's employing to wage war against pride in his inner man? What do I do when weakness overwhelms? It's the disposition of a calm and quiet soul before God. We don't battle pride with sheer will, nor does strength to do this come within us. Rather, it's a humble posture before God. Here's the picture that David gives. My soul is like a weaned child that rests upon his mother. What a tender portrait. Really, what, what a wonderful description to, pe- to, to speak of the soul's relationship to God. Every parent quite aware of the difference between a child who's fussy and a child at rest. The fussiness can be tied to several things. Maybe they're hungry. Maybe there's a dirty diaper. Maybe they're uncomfortable. Maybe the reason's unknown. Some of you moms are back there just saying, maybe it's just their depravity. And you'd be right. We work to understand, right? We want to know what's going on with our children. We want to know the cause. We want to provide relief. We want to help. Why? Because we want this child to be content. A child resting upon his mother is one of the most blissful pictures ever. I mean, how many times during the day you want to you want to pull your hair out at the way that your children are acting. But then that evening you see them asleep and you just think, this is so precious. Or a child that's fussy, that's fed by his or her mother at rest. The reason this is so blissful is the child is content. They are happy. They are secure. They are thankful even if they don't have the capability of being able to express that. In many ways, they are oblivious to all of the challenges in this world. And this is the picture that David gives of his inner man. It's humble, content, secure, resting, not fighting against God, But calmly, quietly, trustfully, resting upon the Lord. What a picture. Like a weaned child is not an expression that many of us consider when we think about our disposition before anyone, let alone God. It's not a favorable expression from a worldly sense. We don't walk around when somebody asks how we're doing. I'm just... Resting upon the Lord like a weaned child. But this is the disposition. You should try that and see what response you get sometime. But this is the disposition of one whom God has quieted. And they have learned to have a calmed and composed soul before God. Children are not weaned overnight. The process of weaning is one that involves 
quite a bit of time. I, I cannot recall. Uh, it might have been both Jaden and Blake, both of our kids. Um, when they were nine months or so, um, I remarked to April just uh, one time, like, how remarkable it was that um, uh, she was getting ready to feed one of them. And they were just, I mean, just wailing. And I said, it's just, isn't that a remarkable thing? Like, every day of their life, a lot of times during the day, you fed them. Like, they've never missed, they've never missed a feeding, yet the way they're acting right now gives the impression that they're never going to have another meal in their life. So it takes a while. It takes a while before a child learns to be content. Likewise, this picture helps us to see that the soul is not so easily quieted and composed. Earlier, when I mentioned that in all likelihood, our, our, maybe our soul lifted up a bit just in the reading of Psalm 131. Maybe there were even expressions in our inner man, I want to be there, but I know that I'm not there. Pride must be stripped, must be crucified would be the language of Colossians 3, and give way to dependence upon Christ. Weakness must be embraced and give way to God's abundant and sufficient grace. So I think we've come to a critical point in this psalm. We understand that pride prevents a quiet and calm soul before God. But how does David arrive at and maintain this posture before God? I mean, he does say, I have composed and quieted my soul. How do we, how do we arrive at and maintain this posture before God? We could do a brief survey just of David's life and we see that pride, both pride and weakness abound. He was the youngest of eight brothers. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a loyal friend. He was an adulterer. He was a king. He was a murderer. He was an accomplished soldier. He was a repentant man. This gives a brief glimpse of how the Bible describes David's humanity. We too have an understanding of our own humanity through our own personal experience and more importantly through how the Bible describes us. So what are you like? What are ways sin is at your door? What are the areas where you may be tempted right now with pride? What has repentance looked like in your life? What are you presently struggling with? What darkness in your life just won't seem to lift? A calm soul is not natural to mankind. In fact, in reality, it seems almost elusive. Life is noisy, it's hard, it's complex, and this is part of the angst of the Christian life. The longing to have a calm soul, to be at rest with him, to hope in him, to have joy in him, to take refuge in him. I mean, that's what we are after, right? Yet sin and suffering too many times appear to be insurmountable obstacles to that rest. Or to say it in another way, what I do, sin, or what's done to me, 
make it seem at times as though I'm running a race going backwards or that I'm running a race in circles or that I'm running a race with heavy weights upon my back and upon my legs or maybe even worse, I'm running a race that seems to have no end in sight. Here is where I believe God does powerful work. Our weakness is before us. It's on display. And it's where we experience and see and embrace and enjoy his grace in the strength and might of Christ. Earlier I mentioned that we we understand our humanity by experience, but we also understand it in the language of Scripture. Colossians talks about how we're hostile people. We're engaged in evil deeds. We're prone to worry. We're fearful. We're anxious. We are affected by troubles within, and we are affected by troubles without. So it would not be wise to consult our inner man to ask ourselves for wisdom on how to have a quiet soul before God. The Christian life is not a formula per se, but rest in God does require these three essential ingredients, calm, quiet, hope. It's the language David uses here. So what does a calmed and quieted soul before God consist of, especially when life can be so noisy? We looked at earlier how a child learns early on the benefit and the joy of security of his or her mother. Consider this helpful and lengthy quote from David Pallison. How do you purify your heart? How does a proud heart become a humble heart? You do not wrestle yourself down by doing penance. You can beat on yourself, resolve to mend your ways, and still be proud. You do not destroy the tumult of self-will by sheer will. I will stop being irritable. I will stop being fretful. I will stop imposing my will on the universe. Can the leopard change its spots? You're not strong enough. Or maybe you are too strong. You only wrestle yourself down by the promises of God's loving kindness. You need the invasion of the Redeemer, the hand of the shepherd. You need great help. The way a drowning man needs great help from outside himself to rescue him. Only one thing is strong enough to empower and slay unruly cravings and a stormy life. What God promises to do in and through Jesus Christ, it is by precious and very great promises that we escape ourselves by being loved by Jesus Christ through the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit himself. From our side, we escape ourselves by learning a lifestyle of intelligent repentance, genuine faith, and specific obedience. Jesus says... How does a soul become quiet before him? Jesus says in Matthew 5 that it's the meek who will inherit the earth. Jesus says that we must come to him in childlike faith. This week we're celebrating Holy Week. At one point in the narrative, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, soon to be handed over, soon to be crucified and forsaken by God. He was praying, sweating drops of blood, 
in agony. Yet his soul was just not only quieted and composed, but resolute to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is able, according to Hebrews chapter four, he is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. He is the great high priest. He is tempted in every way as we are, yet is without sin. That precious reality is what gives us confidence to approach his throne knowing that in him are grace and mercy. He knows the pride that is there. He knows the suffering that you're experiencing and he is near in a way that gives confidence to come to him for this grace and mercy. As has been my prayer in some of yours this past week, Lord, we have no other hope. We have nowhere else we can turn but to you. These are moments like a fussy baby in the night where the soul begins to be rattled. The quiet seems fleeting. The inner man begins to stir. And these are the moments that we again turn to God in hope. A calm and quieted soul learns to rest in Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Though weighed down with burdens, Jesus carries them. Jesus gives rest for the weary soul. A calm and quietest soul rests not only in redemption, but they rest in the Redeemer. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So I find this to be a very appropriate uh, text for Resurrection Sunday. If Christ had not risen from the dead, then everything said this morning would be futile. It would all be in vain. So it speaks to the noise and tension and angst and turmoil of the inner man's struggle. Jesus answers this question in John chapter 15. Abide in him. Abide in his words. Abide in his love. That's the answer. He's the answer. He's the way. Nothing else will calm. Nothing else will compose the soul like abiding in the words, the love, and the presence of Christ. Hope in the Lord. Hope in him now. Really, hope in him now. And trust there will be fresh grace and mercy to hope in him tomorrow and forevermore. Hope in God delivers us from a proud self-will. Hope in God forevermore. These eschatological realities give rise to present confidence in God. Let me say that again. These eschatological realities give rise to present hope and confidence in God. I said recently to a suffering saint who uh, I think has experienced a lifetime of suffering that our goal was not to avoid suffering. That, that wasn't our goal in our conversations. Our goal was not to 
to avoid suffering, but rather to learn how to endure, how to lean upon God. I shared with this precious saint that I, I, I cannot promise that suffering will end in this lifetime, but the suffering that you endure can give rise to greater longing and anticipation of the return of Christ. That's what David is saying here. Hope in the Lord right now and hope in him forevermore. Romans 8, chapter, Romans 8, verse 18. These are, I know these are gonna be some familiar passages, but I, I pray and believe they'll strike a nerve in your heart in a precious and worshipful way this morning. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, which often seem insurmountable, are not worth comparing with the glory that will one day be revealed to us. Heavy suffering. One day will give way to eternal glory. Second, Corinthians 4. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, he's not minimizing suffering right there. He's putting it in eternal view. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Or in the case where affliction is being brought upon others by wicked people. Here's what the Lord says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In a text that most of the Christian world is probably familiarizing themselves again with today, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, or Jesus is saying that he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and that the last enemy to, to be destroyed is death. Loved one, you might be here thinking, man, I've blown it this week in hoping in God. I've blown it this morning in hoping in the Lord. I'm blowing it right now. I do have good news for you. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You know what the great enemy of the soul is? 
It's hopelessness. Think about that for a second. Hopelessness. It's a silent death blow to the soul. There's no way out. There's no answer. And this is why faith, hope, and love are intertwined. Faith in Christ. The love of Christ. That he demonstrates for sinners by dying for us. Love toward Christ that gives rise to hope. This past week, man, there was one moment, it was about a 15-minute stretch, and I had three separate phone calls and conversations that were all life-changing events, just life-changing, life-affecting, hard events. And I threw my head back and my hands in the air and he said, Lord, how do you do it? How do you deal with so much suffering, so much pain? And yet we come to passages like this where it's possible to have a quiet soul before the Lord. We consider the sufferings of Christ. We understand what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, that now he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. And James saying, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith must endure. In 1 Peter, the sufferings of this world... Or, or these things have come so that your precious faith, which is of greater worth than gold, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So, this, is, this has been more of a present reality for many in this congregation of late. And rather than suffering leading to despair, I offer hope. Not, not, obviously not in anything that I can do, but I offer hope in a person who took sin. God sent him, as First John 4 speaks of, to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy God's wrath for us. God sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. This hope is in a person, not in a change of scenery or circumstances, for this will eventually boil up in the soul, but hope in the love of Christ. By all means, pray that things would change. Pray, pray that God would change people. Pray that God would change circumstances. But that can't be our, that, that change of scenery, change of circumstances, change of events, that, can't, that cannot be the object of hope. It's gotta be Christ. It has to be Christ. David's quiet soul was not because he mystically found some inner peace. He was being weaned from the world. 
and was learning to rest with confidence in Christ. Let's say that again. He was being weaned from the world and learning to rest with confidence in Christ. So hope in God, Grace Church. He is the peace that passes all understanding and will guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. Before I close, I want to read. These are one of those moments where I really wish I could sing. I want to read to you a, uh, a hymn by Katerina von Schlegel, Psalm 131 inspired. We've, we've, we've sang this before. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Be still, my soul, when dearest friends depart and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then shalt thou better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe thy sorrow and thy fears. Be still, my soul. Thy Jesus can repay. From his own fullness, all he takes away. Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot Love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past. All safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. Be still, my soul. Begin the song of praise on earth, believing to thy Lord on high. Acknowledge him in all thy words and ways, so shall he view thee with a well-pleased eye. Be still, my soul, the sun of life divine, through passing clouds shall be, or shall but more, brightly shine. So I say again, hope in the Lord, Grace Church, now and forever. He is the peace that passes, transcends, all understanding and guards our hearts in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the love of Christ. We thank you for the person and work of Christ. And we thank you for 
the Spirit's work of sanctification in our life that we would live upon the humility of Christ in dependence upon Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would, you would make us a people that understand and enjoy abiding in Christ. Do this for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.